file under imagination, comma, lack of. And welcome to the Whovian Review. I'm Michael. I'm Shelby. This be Colin. And tonight we're going to talk about Ghost Light, the season 26 second story, although this was the very last story that Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred filmed as the Doctor and Ace. Are you telling me this is the last filmed episode of the classic era? Yes. This is literally the the end of an era? (laughs) Yes. And uh, I should say, point out that, as Sylvester says in the commentary, the, the last few lines of this story were the last few lines that were recorded for Doctor Who in the 1980s. So the last line recorded of Doctor Who in the 80s was Wicked? Yep. <laughs> Wicked. Kind of a, a simple little sentence, but oh well. <laughs> No big speeches for the end. Yeah. It is what it is. Now, they did have to go back and record um, Sylvester McCoy talking, and I'm, I'm not sure if that was after Ghost Light or not. Um, I'll have to look that one up. But we'll get to that when we get to survival. All right, yeah. So one really important factor I felt like in this episode was Ace's wardrobe. Awesome. <laughs> it I mean, was. True. She looked Stunning. amazing the entire thing, and she had three different outfits. Not only did she look amazing, but she was acting amazing. I mean, Sophie was on point with every scene she was in, whether it was a going against Sylvester's colder, darker, quieter moments, or whether she was scared out of her wits because of all the animals surrounding her or whatever. Everything she did in this story was stellar. Perfect, 100 she, she was brilliant, you know, gr- great acting here, and also, you know, it, from the more shallow sense of it all, she, we, it proved that Sophie was able to pull off a leather jacket, you know, gentleman's tux, off the shoulder top, and, you know, some frilly Victorian dress, you know, not at all, and, you know, it was, it, I think that change was fitting for a lot of the themes that we have on this episode. Yeah, and the fact that change was one of those themes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I thought that Ace's whole storyline was the best part of this episode with, you know, her having a rough childhood, freaking out, coming to this house, sensing, you know, bad omens about it and then burning it to the ground. But it, what's even darker is that the doctor actually brings her back to this house. But he didn't know that she burned it to the ground. No, but he knew that there was something going on about this house. And so for him to manipulate her into going back to a house that she no, never wanted to go to in the first place, that's kind of 
unusual, but... I mean, is it, though? I feel like I see a lot of doctors, you know, always pushing their companions, especially even in classically, into, you know, territory that they don't necessarily want to be in. But I think even in, in more so... You know, it always pushes the boundaries into facing those fears and other things for the companions. I don't think it's too out of sort, but it definitely was, you know, a darker spin on it. I actually think it's it's darker than that. I think the doctor brought her there because he wanted to know what she'd seen, what had happened, and get to the bottom of it. And he felt like having her with him would be a more effective way of reaching that end. And I think that's exactly true, and that's why I feel like this is such a dark thing for the Doctor to do. And I think the Seventh Doctor does have some of the darkest moments. So what you're saying is is that we had a very dark Doctor opposing light? I think what he's saying is that this Doctor is a bit wicked. (laughs) I would say so. And that takes us to the Doctor, who in this story does... uh, Sylvester McCoy does an amazing job. This is his final episode of... Doctor who? But I Dr. Mean, Darwin, I think, at one point. <laughs> he he had a I mean he had a lot of roles in this episode, but I think the most was instigator, manipulator, and observer. That was I think his role in this whole story. Um and ultimately he does obviously win the day. Yeah, against a villain who really like what was his deal? Like so he went around and he cat catalogs it like, animals and creatures on planets. Like, was this his first planet or something? Like, he was just shocked by the existence of evolution? Like, what was that? Yeah, is this well, taking place other? Yeah. Other unlike, planets? Unlike, like, Ace's, seem... unlike Ace's amazing backstory, we didn't have a backstory for light. I mean, I liked much the of idea else. of an alien going around cataloging things. I thought it was cool having the experimental and control group be part of the concept, but then it was like, but wait, what are you doing? Yeah, like, Josiah <laughs> yeah. was a big change agent. There was change all around. I mean, if anything, like, he seemed kind of out of place, you know, in this episode in a lot of respects. Light did? Yeah. Yeah, and it and just sort of like... the only one that was, you know, really staunchly resistant to change. And I, I never really uh, jived with his reasoning against it either, especially even when he gets to the point, I can see why he'd be upset things are changing. His work is never done, you know, but that doesn't mean that by killing everything that your work is, you know, more done or more complete. Yeah, because he hasn't, like, cataloged all the animals that are alive today, which, frankly, right. I think would have been... Right, potentials for them either. I mean, you yeah. can say that he documented well a space of time, but destroying, you know, what comes afterwards, you know, doesn't get him anything about the desires that we know him to have. Yeah, and also, it doesn't really, like, the doctor's, you know, argument to him doesn't really makes sense why it was convincing if, like, you know, what Colin said didn't come to pass, because he was all like, oh, what about the basilisks and the dragons and stuff you haven't cataloged? And he's like, what? No, then my work's not done. But it's, like, to your point, obviously the work wasn't done. That had already been established that that guy realized that. But I think the doctor's point was your work hasn't been done in the original oh. aspect of things. Right. He did... He did all this work, and the doctor was trying to kind of push his buttons by saying, you didn't even finish your catalog, because what about these creatures that were there when you were there? And of course the doctor's just bringing up imagination. Yeah, I take this to be a humorous jest. Are dragons and basilisks canon in pre-Doctor Who? There's many years that I haven't 
delved into still. <laughs> there, I, there are there are no dragons. The doctor was quite. I think Except the ones that hatch from the moon sometime in the future. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, that's a whole other can of but, worms. But, uh, you know, of course, you know, what came first, the dragon or the egg? I'm pretty sure a dragon laid that moon egg, so he is missing the dragon. Okay, you know, yeah, but, but to, an- to answer the point of your question, I think the doctor was just bringing up the mythological creatures because he knew that that guy would, you know... Would, he would question himself. Yeah. That's true, but I wouldn't say that, you know, basilisks or dragons in Doctor Who are unquestionable. No, no, I'm totally with you there. Like, yeah, that could absolutely be. In fact, it's a little weird that there isn't a basilisk. Although now that there's been one in Harry Potter, I think it's kind of rare. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the BBC might be able to, you know, get away with having some local set designs or... You might have to go over to the show Merlin to find your basilisks and your dragons. Especially the dragon. BBC takes care of that too, right? Yeah, was there a basilisk in Merlin? I don't think so. Yes. There was? Yeah, we actually recently watched the basilisk in Merlin. After we watched that show. They were talking about it. Uh, The dragon's kind of obvious because John Hurt plays the dragon. Well, yeah, but we shouldn't go too much into that probably. But I, yeah. Another character that kind of. uh, jumps into this whole thing is the butler or Nimrod, who is a Neanderthal that is brought back by light to the Victorian age. I, I did like his depiction as be, like an entity that's capable of, you know, intelligence similar to modern man, because I think that that is the case, like at least as far as we know. And that was the evolutional process that that this character goes through thanks to Josiah Smith. Yeah, a lot of evolutionary psychology that, you know, gets attached to um, archaeology and other things that we know has Neanderthals, you know, being potentially more empathetic and emotional, you know, in terms of humans too. They may have had capabilities that we're missing out on even though, you know, we became more dominant over time. So like, I think there's well, mem- some evidence to also say that we, we ate them. I love that. Also, love that the, we mated with them. Some of both, yeah, yeah. you know. That that's the dark nature of humans. Oh, I don't know which one I hope came first. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm gonna say this though. I love how the writer chose the name Nimrod as a misnomer because obviously. Well, he's actually, not I, that, I don't. I don't think it was a misnomer. I think it was an indication of how pompous the people around him were. Possibly, but also, I mean, but it was for he, him as an individual. Yeah, for him as yeah. an individual, Nimrod is typically uh, someone with a lesser intelligence. Right. I, I thought of it more as like they all called him that because they thought, oh, he's lesser, he's primitive. That could be too. I mean, it has multiple meanings. Yeah. But but that is kind of a cool misnomer as he is probably more intelligent than even Light and Josiah because he's actually He definitely got, has, you know, some true honor in the end. Too. Yes. Well, what, what, what exactly was like his... Hold, like, who who was he really loyal to in this story? I mean, I think he was loyal to a, to a degree to Josiah because he Josiah was the one that brought him to where he's at now. So he has that to thank for him. And Josiah was not nearly as bad as Light was. Um, I guess the doctor kind of points that out too. Um, but yeah, it's probably still, you know, even being under Light is probably, you know, a lot better than, you know, 
growing up in you know prehistory. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But there's a point where where Nimrod actually talks to Light and says, "My people used to worship see, you." Yeah, say you were a god. And and that's his intelligence going. I see you're not really a god. You're just an entity right here in front of me. And I think that's kind of where that where he kind of I guess he has that change or that evolution again where he's realizing that his allegiance to light is kind of mislaid and may and that may also question his allegiance to Josiah Smith so then he sees who the real character in this whole story is that really succeeds in the end and that's control so I guess at the in the end and he obviously joins control and the other unnamed character so far, which is uh, Redford's uh, Fen Cooper. Yeah, and, oh, they, yeah. They, and they presumably fly off into space to go do space things forever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, now, I, I guess in the end it really just amounts to, like, you know, a car leaving the garage with a big yeah. climax. Now, Fen Cooper is a very odd character because not, there's not a whole lot explained as to where he came from and how he got there in the first place. Yeah, kind of like those, those fly people, you know... Oh. Those, those husks? Oh, no, no, no. It was... Uh, They're all husks of Josiah? No, no. Like, that guy, like, he, he looked at light and went crazy and yes. thought that he was back in Zimbabwe still because presumably that's where he was when he saw the thing that freaked him out or something. And it wasn't really explained. And then, like... At the end, didn't he, like, seem to no longer be crazy suddenly and was just, what, what like... What were up with those, like, bug creatures? Oh, he was were... just... He was seeing things. I think I think that may have something to do with when light actually goes out the door, so to speak, and light kind of evaporates, then that takes away the... Oh, that's... The fear of light in general, so he's able to gain, regain his memories and his, his own psyche back. Yeah, but but the reason he was there was because he had an in with the, with Queen Victoria, and had an invite to Buckingham Palace for a dinner, and he also had an invite for a guest. He could bring a plus one, and uh, yes, so Josiah invited him over and was treating him real well because he wanted to get that ticket, yep. because his goal was to hunt Queen Victoria and and kill her. Although I will say that, and I think we've already touched on this uh, separately from this podcast, is that this story was supposed to originally have been four episodes. It was cut down to three, and because of that, a lot of the explanations and a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the things that would have made a lot more sense if we actually could see them were cut out. Yeah, and, you know, on that note, we actually did watch some, you know, special features and read a summary of this before this podcast because a lot of the scenes in this kind of left us going, what just happened? Like, when Light was defeated and, like, exploded or whatever, like, what what happened to him exactly? I mean, I guess... I mean, he could explode or fly, right? I think it's more that he okay. he overloaded because he because everything was changing, including himself. And the doctor had kind of talked his way out of that, so he talked. So it was basically like, like a Cyberman emotional overload explosion. I, that's what I thought it was. I mean, because the doctor says he's just been dispersed, which I guess means that light's still there, but just not in that current state. I don't know. I think I so think it evolved. means he was like atomized. No, I, I personally think he died from lack of imagination. <laughs> Well, that's not very well explained. All we know that it's wicked. 
Well, that's how he's filed it. Yeah, a lot was not explained in this well, story. Well, like the husks that were in that were in the spaceship, that was not explained at all. They they did they left that part out completely. We the only way we know that it, those were um, pieces of Josiah's exoskeleton being left behind as he changes um, were because we looked it up. Now we do know that Josiah could change because we saw the old Josiah sitting down while the new Josiah comes out from behind the TARDIS. So we knew that he evolves and that he changes himself, but we didn't understand that those husks were previous incarnation, I guess you might say, of Josiah Smith. Yeah, it really feels like we really missed out on having that extra episode, or you know, maybe it'd be great if you read you know, Mark's book first and then you watch this, because... You know, for for all you know the you know craziness and for the amount of elements that have going on. I mean, this is a complex story, and normally I do well complexity. But you know, we mentioned we mentioned the bad, but it has some good going on on for it too. And, and we've touched on some of it. I think the acting is really strong in here, except for light. <laughs> yeah, he he could be better, and and I feel like the character I think we needs need more development or at least more explanation here from what I, I don't, saw. I don't know. I kind of liked his, when he... Be, I mean, I liked the fact that he was just kind of this angelic kind of uh, flamboyant character, but then when he got mad, holy moly, don't anybody get near him, because he'll turn you into stone or he'll yeah, turn I, you I into think, soup. I think it was good acting. I think it was hard for me to under, to kind of understand and delve into his motivations to kind of relate to him. More, but I, I I saw like the kind of the terrifying, you know. Oh, I just felt like he took me out of but... every scene he was in. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, some of it, you know, I, I if I looked at it in another light, could just be laughable, you know, if I didn't let myself get entrenched by, you know, the eighties, you know, makeup and set design and wearing of comforters, you know, for kids. <laughs> um, Fair. Yeah, but I, I think past that, I, I think the acting was good. I think it was a lack of development. Well, well his, take his it or leave it, but, but you know, if you don't agree with that one, I think you have to agree that Ace put out a great oh, yeah. performance here. You know, that I think the Doctor, you know, was pretty strong, too, and had a lot of different elements. I really liked uh, the char- the actor actresses that played Gwendolyn and Mrs. Yeah, Pritchard. Yeah, we didn't even mention them. Both great performances. Especially Pritchard. She was she was looked like she was straight out of a gothic horror movie. Yeah, I she, mean she could have easily... probably a more horrifying character than like. <laughs> <laughs> she was. She was, and we didn't really know why until the end. She was, obviously these two were kind of hypnotized and taken o- their minds taken over by these aliens, because those two characters were um, uh, were the original house owners. Now, the original, uh, the other house owner, obviously the father, he was killed by Josiah and Light. Uh, that was how they acquired the house. Um, but talking about the house, another good aspect of this episode was the set design, Big the dude. lighting, yeah. the direction. There was a lot of visual stunningness that the BBC works, they usually do have to work on a budget, but man, they can put together anything Victorian in a heartbeat. It doesn't take them long to figure out where to put things. But mm-hmm. everything, every detail, the wallpaper, the painting, the paintings, the... Um, the, the wood. The, yeah, all the wood, all, all the very brown colors. It was a very brown, dark, 
Even the doctor's the coat. costumes and the, you know. Even the doctor's coat was chocolate brown in this episode. So, I mean, it just really kind of reflected this kind of darker, mahogany, old Victorian kind of feel. And I felt that was really good. I also have to mention, like I said I would, the music. Now, one of the problems with this story is that some of the lines, you really can't hear them because the music overpowers what the people are saying. Tisk tisk. Yeah, we turned on subtitles. We had to turn on subtitles. So if you didn't have subtitles back in the day, which most people didn't, then you had to go through this whole episode without knowing half of what was being said because the soundtrack was overpowering the words. However, I will say that this soundtrack is one of the more amazing soundtracks from the classic era. This one just has some really good musical cues and just is, it's spooky. It makes you feel that haunted house vibe that they're trying to go for in the direction. So I do give them props for that. Yeah. And when light enters, wow, it's kind of like this big organ angelic entrance that you can't really uh, mistake for, like, epicness at that point. Oh, my God. Honestly, when he first entered, I thought, like, Rassilon was about to walk out that door, and I was like, what is going to happen now? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been kind of cool if they changed it into, like, a a Time Lord or something. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, you you get get a lot of timey-wimey vibes just from, like, the change and, you know... Um, you know, all the allu- all the allusions to Darwin and the evolution themes um, going throughout it. So basically, I guess what we have here is a very is it's a shorter story, um, which doesn't lend well to its. It's one of the few stories in Doctor Who's classic run where you actually wish they had another episode. Here, here. Mo- <laughs> most yeah, of- all these other ones are like, this could be three episodes, maybe two, two and a half. Yeah, but, but this but one... this one really needed that extra episode. Honestly, even with the extra episode, I think this one might warrant five parts, and it may have been an epic story. You know, I mean, if you had another part, you'd probably have to have a completely different setting and a completely different like. I don't. I don't see why you have to, and and maybe that you would just have to develop it more slowly at all. But yeah, it does feel like I'm missing a really big chunk of this. It feels like I had a brilliant fever dream of a great episode. Yeah, it does kind of feel like that because honestly, before we like looked up what exactly was the plot of this episode, I was like totally lost about it. I was like, I missed, like, half of what had been happening. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we we talked about it. Music, you know, good, you know, uh, set design. Acting. Even the writing. The writing was actually pretty decent. The the dialogue was... was, The script was great, the back and forths, and... It makes Jodie Whittaker's era look a little bit... uh... (laughs) Yeah, even the actors that we didn't talk about did great. Like, Ian Hogue is Josiah, I thought, you know, was a a great depiction. Like, I love how he played it kind of, like, drunk and off-kilter. Like, it really made him feel just so despicable to me. (laughs) Yeah, we also had um, uh, the Reverend Ernest Matthews at the beginning, who turns into an ape. Um, another evolution. Oh, yeah, and then we had that inspector who was turned into a suit. The poor, yeah, I felt so sorry for Inspector McKenzie. He was sitting there for two years being just stuffed in a drawer, and the doctor finally frees him. This seems to happen a lot in in sci-fi. And as soon as he's released, he gets to eat a sandwich and then gets killed and turned into soup. I hope it was a good sandwich. I know, I hope so too. I hope it was good soup. (laughs) 
<laughs> Colin, oh my. Anyway, but yeah, I just, I think there's definitely a lot going for this. It, it definitely has some confusion. And I think we're at a point where we can probably rate this. Sure. You want to go first, Michael? Oh gosh, now I'm out of order. Okay, I'll take it on. I don't want you to be overly burdened. I will do like I usually do and run out of the gate firing like a blaze as our listeners are just, you know, hanging on my every word to just try and understand a little bit more what's going behind my noggin. But I think a lot of my thoughts have already been portrayed here in this episode. We have the good. You know, we have, you know, rich set design. We have good music when it's not covering up the dialogue that's crucial to understanding the story. We have, we have fantastic acting that's really at the heart of it, and we have what it ultimately is, you know, a good story. Um, there's a lot of charisma, you know, across the characters, and there's a lot of intrigue, I think, that happens here, but, you know, a pitfall here is that there's just a lot that doesn't make sense. You know, it, we really would love for this to be a four-parter. I think I would have loved to see that, or at least just get a little bit more context clues. Um, I think, you know, th this might be a 10 out of 10 episode if it didn't require literal cliff notes um, <laughs> to patch it up behind the scenes. I'm really stuck here between a 7 and an 8, and I haven't done a half rating in a while, but for me, this is going to get its 7.5 out of 10. Ooh. I feel like this story had a lot of really great potential and a lot of really great elements, as we've discussed. I think that the fact that, you know, we did need, you know, cliff notes on it, we had to look it up because the story did not make sense and they were not able to tell it effectively um, is extremely unfortunate because this could have been good, but I'm going to have to give this a 4 out of 10. Wow. There's a very slight, different, big difference between those two scores. Um, I echo the concept of this story not being a story that I could watch the first time round, especially since when I first saw it, I was like 12 or 13 years old, so I really had no idea what the heck was going on. This, this was so confusing the first go-around. I didn't have any cliff notes, I didn't have anything, until I actually purchased the novel. Then it started to click into place and it made more sense. And not only that, then I watched it multiple more times and I've seen it enough now where it does make more sense. However, I still have to base this on, on the fact that, yeah, this is confusing. Everybody agrees with pretty much everybody. It's a beautifully directed uh, script. It's a beautifully directed um, storyline. And the visuals for this story are, are actually really stunning, given the fact that it's a BBC 1980s sci-fi show. Um, but they somehow pulled it off quite well in that regard. I don't think I'm going to be as generous as Colin, but I'm not going to be as harsh as Shelby. So this is going to get a 5.5 for me. Fair enough. I, I may have been overshooting things, but, you know, I, I, I it, love the potential. No. And, you know, I, I honestly reframed this in my mind a couple of times as we went along. If yeah. You, if you it, had, it had the entertaining elements for me, and mm -hmm. I, I still think we need to get meta about ratings to talk about how we rate things a little bit, too, because I feel like so much of what we say right now we agree upon, 
and we've had the most spread that we've had across the three of us in quite some time. Yeah, I feel like the way that I rate now is really different from the way that I rated before. <laughs> I'm. I feel like I haven't really changed my rating scale that much because I'm still rating the ones that I feel are really low as really low, but. Most of Doctor Who for me isn't very low. I'm usually at least a five or a six on almost every story. Yeah, I have to say, so, like, I feel like there's a bit of an, uh, a grading inflation that has happened to me um, since before I was on the podcast, since that I've become on the podcast. Yeah. Like, I always feel like I've, I've taken on some, like, Doctor Who responsibility to say, no, you need to understand that Doctor Who is a great series. <laughs> and yeah. It takes work, and it's not for the average bear to understand its complexities, but it is worth it. So I almost feel like I I get a little bit more of that lobbyist vibe sometimes when I do rate my Doctor Who episodes, but, um, you know, I, I do think uh, it, it felt like when I was more of a listener and I was a fan, I was more easily able to say, like, come on, that was a four. <laughs> this is a five. Like now that, that you're that's really, what it is, but now it's like I'm too I much see, of a fan. I see potential values, you know, in the story, and you know, it it is worth a watch, even if you know I have plenty of complaints and gripes to talk about. But most of them are always opportunities, you know, based. You know, there's there's a real opportunity lost here, rather than it had zero entertainment value. I think also the fact that we had such a diverse score set also kind of reflects the general fandom for this story. A lot of fans love it and will give it 9s and 10s. A lot of fans are like, what the heck did I just watch? I'm giving this a 3 or a 4. I think that our, like, diversity in ratings was really came down to how much weight we put on the fact that the story was unintelligible. Yeah, that's pretty fair. <laughs> like I, I, I think we I, all I'm agreed about the good parts ass. and the bad parts. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm such like a, a binge watcher of television, you know. I've, I've led a lot of lounge lizard hours, you know, in, throughout my life. Um, that I feel like I already understand the structures of stories, and now I just kind of appreciate the moments. And there are a lot of great moments throughout this episode, even if the story as a whole may not be worth telling without <laughs> without it really, you know, being told in an appropriate it, way. I don't know if it would be not worth telling. You're right. That that was I that was harsh, but if you were only going to give me this allotment of time or, you know, kind of resources from uh, how much plot we can actually sneak in. Um, then I, I don't think it's worth it. I, I think, you know, again, as we've said, it, it does need more time to really tell that story to be a complete story. The story arc in this, you know, episode series, I think, you know, it, in a lot of regards, is trash, even if it tells a great theme and it has great stories and great moments and, you know, richness in other dimensions. And he gives it a 7.5. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do, because, again, you know, I'm valuing those moments. I'm valuing mm -hmm. the charisma. What's going to stick with me and, and make me think past this episode, more so that it's important that, you know, in the moment, it told necessarily a great story. I, I think you can have great entertainment value mm -hmm. separated from the greatness of a story. But don't get me wrong, I always love great stories, too. I would say, though, that the one plot line that does work in this story, because it was told pretty well, was Ace's story. 
We yeah, did, having we, having some of that back backstory well, for Ace, I, I think, was valuable. Yeah, but, character but, and, and contextualizing a lot of this season. Yeah, no. I mean, I agree with that, but then I don't know about the story being well told because, like, so why was she upset? Why did she come to this abandoned Victoria house, which then freaked her out enough that she wanted to burn it down? Why did she come? She was. It was kind of on a dare that was, she said so in the story oh, okay. that her friend was the one that got her to go over the wall and go into the house, and she because Ace is Ace and she's going to go ahead and and be the rebel that she is and take on those kinds of things. She's going to go do it. Ace do be Ace. Um, I also didn't understand the thing with Ace and the birds, the dead birds on the wall. That was a nightmare. She was like, I. Doctor, have you ever had one of those nightmares where you can't move? And then everything was coming alive, and, and she felt like it was attacking her, even though it wasn't. Okay. It was her mind, her psyche, thinking that everything was coming alive and was was after her, which is one of the most typical horror uh, kind of like nightmares that people always dream. Yeah, but it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I think it's because everything was coming to life. Everything or, and light was kind of bringing everything back. Oh, so the birds were actually coming to life. To a degree, yes, but they never fully made it back from there. Oh, okay. I thought the whole thing was in her head, and I was no. like, what is... I, I think it's a combination of it being in her head and also the everything starting to come back to life. And it it's... It's the nature of the evil in the house, I guess, that kind of attacks Ace's well-being and her psyche. Yeah, that's what I got from that. Yeah, this story is a little bit too open to interpretation. It certainly is, you know. So, but it was a good moment. Tell us, tell us why we're wrong. Tell us why we're right. Um, Or you know, fade off into silence. But this has been a a, a robust postamble to this episode (laughs) of the Whovian Review. Thank you. We'll catch you uh, around this time next week, I presume. Good night, everyone. Bye.